This is the EPFR Exchange Podcast. All opinions expressed by Cam, Todd, and our podcast guests are solely of their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of EPFR or Informa, its parent company. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the EPFR Exchange Podcast. My name is Todd Willits, and I'm joined by EPFR's economist, Cameron Brand. We'll walk you through what our teams were monitoring last week in the data EPFR tracks, as well as what we'll look for in the upcoming week. Cam, good morning. Uh, we're a little over a year into the the COVID narrative. We were talking about it last year on the podcast. Um, how do you think things are going? Well, we are definitely seeing... Uh, vaccination program certainly in some countries ramp up um, and uh, you know that much hackneyed phrase some light at the end of the tunnel certainly seems to be uh, justified Um, but uh, I would not be at all surprised if there is one more bad twist to the story. We, we are seeing a number of uh, mutations of the virus pop up in different places. Um, some countries are well behind uh, the eight ball when it comes to even getting uh, any kind of vaccination program set up, uh, let alone launched. Uh, Brazil comes to mind there. Um, but certainly the markets, uh, uh, and uh, the people who commit money to the funds we track uh, are firmly looking ahead to brighter days. Uh, This week's flows, except in the era of inflation, seem to me to discount a lot of potentially bad news. Yep. So first things first, you mentioned it. Inflation concerns are creeping into the investor behavior that we track. I know that Record. We saw record flows for both global equity funds as well as ESG. Those may be separate, but is that are they are those both inflation plays? Well, uh, the, certainly the global equity fund flows, I think, are um, when when you don't quite know what's going to happen. Uh, one way of capturing the perceived benefits of of a general rebound. It, and avoiding some of the specific issues that may dog an individual market uh, going global has been sort of a, a standard response in the many years we've been tracking fund flows. Um, I will say that at least at the moment, the epicenter of this concern is the U.S. A um, couple of reasons for that. One is that uh, the Fed has, a, you know, in its... Uh, Delphic way certainly signaled that it's much more concerned that when uh, rising demand meets uh, somewhat constrained supply later this year, uh, and given the volumes of cash that are out there, that uh, this really could uh, push the inflation rate rapidly past their 2% target ceiling. Uh, and the U.S. Ha- also has the most obvious overhang of, of disposable cash, as we've said in previous podcasts. Um, there's still pretty much a, a trillion dollars in the money market funds that we track that wasn't there uh, at this time last year. Um, and the estimates for uh, extra savings by uh, of their disposable income 
by U.S. consumers during the pandemic is still hovering around $2 trillion. It's a big wall of cash, and if that moves in quickly uh, at a time when a lot of firms have responded to the pandemic by mothballing or retiring capacity, um, and you have the ESG SRI narrative, which is not uh, particularly supportive of many extractive commodity producers and fossil fuel providers, um, it's very easy to make a case for uh, inflation really surging uh, past that 2% mark. At this point, is all the Fed, is, is the only step the Fed can take to talk about what they'll do, or is there any action they can put into place ahead of uh, perhaps inflation rising above 2% that can signal they're serious about it? Or is it just uh, Jerome Powell getting in front of mm-hmm. the camera and talking about what they will do if it happens? I think I think you've put your finger on it that the most effective tool they have, uh, absent actually raising the rates, is is to make it clear that um, while they've said that they you know they want inflation to run a little hot just to bake it into expectations, um, they're not comfortable if it really starts to surge past a reasonable band around the two percent mark. Uh, and, and I would say, you know, it's already had an effect, uh, certainly in the fund flows this week. Um, people, uh, investors reacted as if it was uh, already a given. Uh, I was particularly struck by you know, bank loan funds, which are classically viewed as a play on rising interest rates, having their biggest inflow in, in uh, well over two years. Um, and we in this podcast have been flagging for some time that uh, the, the flows into inflation protected bond funds have been, you know, above average and, and uh, partic- uh, eye-catchingly consistent. So something that has caught my eye in the past week, uh, why are institutional investors so scared of investing in China right now? <laughs> well... Uh, I would call it healthy caution. Uh, we did see very strong out retail, uh, sorry, institutional outflows from China equity funds last week, uh, and another week of much smaller redemptions uh, in the in the in the past seven days. Um, and I think they're reacting to a number of things, all of which make perfect sense. One is the extremely strong retail. Uh, interest that's uh, being expressed through China equity funds. Um, and certainly uh, over the past five, six years, these surges in uh, retail interest have not uh, ended well, certainly for sort of market valuations. There have been very sharp corrections, uh, most notably in 2015, uh, but again in 2018. Um, so, um, you know, if you believe in excess momentum, uh, many of our clients do, uh, it's reasonable to think we may be sort of reaching that tipping point. Uh, there's some facts on the ground, too, that I think uh, make it a little more likely that uh, the institutional investors are right to see this is certainly a potential moment. Um, you know, China is in a 
in a way that most other countries would love to have uh, wrestling with a a second uh, COVID wave. Uh, It's tiny compared to what's happening in other countries. But um, one of the lessons that uh, we have seen uh, from the second waves that have emerged, uh, especially in Europe, is that... uh, uh, a successful track record of dealing with the first wave is, is almost a contrarian indicator of how well you can do or will do during the second go about. Um, the reasons for this are, are widely debated, but I think one of them is that you know, if you successfully protect people uh, from exposure, uh, if you did so in the spring, it means that uh, the, the, the pool of people who are vulnerable to the virus uh, remains much larger. This is happening in China, um, you know, and I think we both agree that uh, China has uh, management tools at its disposal that are not <laughs> available to democratically elected governments. Um, but they are trying to get to grips with it ahead of the Chinese New Year, which is. Uh, uh, in normal years, a uh, two to three week window when a m- major percentage of the Chinese population uh, travels long distances to go you know, back to family in the countryside or, or in other cities. Um, so, <laughs> you know, there is a chance, and I think it's a small chance that, uh, you know, the timing could be quite unfortunate for China and it may find itself uh, wrestling uh, with a more serious outbreak than uh, seemed likely earlier. But keeping in mind that the initial outbreak did occur prior to Chinese New Year last year, and they did seem to uh, have some success at controlling the spread throughout the country. So perhaps with uh, the extra year of knowledge, maybe we will see uh, a, a bit of a containment of that. Yes, no, no, and, and that honestly would be my bet. But you know, if if, if any we've been taught anything uh, about through this pandemic, it is that hubris doesn't serve you well, um, and that uh, a degree of healthy caution <laughs> about its progress progression uh, is certainly merited. So you don't think that this is the year that retail investors own? You don't think that this is the the turning point where retail investors take over the market and make the right moves versus their institutional counterparts? Well, <laughs> I think I, certainly based on the momentum coming into this year, I think it is certainly a year where the retail footprint may be as big as it has been uh, since the era of the Japanese housewife. Um, and, you know, there's, again, considerable debate as to whether uh, retail interest should be viewed as a screaming contrarian signal uh, or whether, you know, the wisdom of crowds principle applies here. Um, I do think that uh, the retail interest is a symptom of how effective major central banks have been in sort of repressing fixed income yields. Uh, I think some of these investors are here because uh, they're desperate for yield, which they're not getting from the quote-unquote safe vehicles. Um, 
But on the other, uh, and also just the market keeps going up and up. And at a certain point, <laughs> you know, you sit and watch it for so long uh, before you give into the temptation to jump in. Um, you know, that if that is the motivator, then yes, this is a, a, a strong contrarian signal. Um, but I, I think it has more to do with a couple of more neutral factors. Uh, one, one is that uh, investors can't just park their money in a CD and hope to live off the interest. So they're compelled. Some of them are compelled to get uh, back in the market. And the other factor is that uh, during the lockdown, as again, as we've talked about, um, people have by necessity gotten a lot more comfortable with uh, technology, how to use it, uh, how to conduct their affairs online. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, so there's certainly the pool of retail investors being expanded by uh, people, certainly in Europe and the U.S., you know, working out how to do it off their laptops. Um, so um, neutral to <laughs> probably not would be the answer to my question, but I, I, I'm certainly not designating it uh, the arrival of fools in the market just yet. Before I go in the backyard and dig up all my Bitcoin that I buried 10 years ago, uh, why don't you go ahead and tell us what the team's working on next week or over this week uh, in the research world? Well, it actually, in some ways, I think will tie to um, uh, Bitcoin, which is that we are in the next uh, week or so going to shift our focus to um, you know, volatility, how it's playing out, uh, what signals there are in the data. Um, and while we don't track cryptocurrencies, um, EPFR is increasingly, you know, expanding its efforts to analyze and work with our core data sets in conjunction with, uh, external sources and, uh, I think uh, you know, any analysis of volatility will re require at least some <laughs> dipping into uh, trends in cryptocurrencies. Great. Thanks, Cam. Have a great week, and we'll talk uh, next Monday. We will indeed. As always, you can find EPFR on LinkedIn and on Twitter at EPFR. To sign up to receive our EPFR daily exchange research we spoke about here, you can visit financialintelligence.informa.com. For questions or to suggest a topic for an upcoming podcast, you can email EPFR exchange podcast at informa.com.